Well, good morning, Grumlaw. What an honor and privilege it is to be closing out our series, David, with you. And in this series, we've been taking a look at the life of David, the second king of Israel. And his remarkable and unshakable faith in God leaves for us an example and lessons that we can learn from. And if you've missed any of these messages, you can always get caught up at grumlaw.com messages. But I'm confident that no matter where you're catching us, that God has a word for you this morning. Well, I titled my lesson, Dust. And what we're gonna see from David's life is that some of the choices that he made later on had consequences that not only shattered his future, but literally ground it into dust. Let me explain. One of my favorite authors uh, in a book titled, It's Not Supposed to Be This Way, says this about a life-shattering experience that she had. After an affair, that broke her marriage, she writes, we live in a broken world where broken things happen. So it's not surprising that things get broken in our life as well. But what about those times when things just aren't broken, but they're shattered beyond repair? Shattered into dust. At least when things are broken, you can try to glue the pieces back together. But what if there aren't even pieces to pick up in front of you? You can't glue dust. Well, when life is hard, really hard, when we're broken by the circumstances of our choices or broken by the choices others have made, sometimes we can try to pick up the pieces and, and we can try to fit them back together and, and, and glue them. But what about when there's times when you can't fix it? What about when the baby you've dreamt of having will not be a reality? When the marriage seems broken beyond repair? When our closest friends betray us? When you didn't get the job? When your prodigal child has not come home? And when a relationship cannot be restored? What do we do when our lives are not just broken, but they've been ground into dust? Well, I believe we can answer this question from a life, with a lesson from the life of David. You know, he was called a man after God's own heart. And here's one of the commentaries about who David was. It says, but God removed Saul, and Saul was the first king of Israel, and he replaced him with David, a man about whom God said. And what's so incredible is that God said it, not a human being, it wasn't someone else's opinion, but God said I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. Well, David was Israel's second king, we've said that, and he replaced Saul, who disobeyed him, and God called David this man after his own heart. And after hearing David's story this morning, you may wonder how this is possible because he made mistakes and choices that he couldn't undo but I hope by the end to make it all clear and to show us how David's life and his example intersect with our lives and can lead to the healing of our brokenness. Well, as we learned last week, David was anointed by the prophet Samuel around the age of 10. And then at 15, David slayed the giant Goliath and he became this instant success. 
And after that, Saul calls David into his service. And David spends time uh, comforting Saul and also being with Saul and going out and fighting uh, armies. But Saul's jealousy, because David was becoming more popular, it would just weld up inside of him. And Saul wanted David dead. So David has to flee for his life and he spends about seven years living as a fugitive, hiding. But when Saul dies, he finally becomes the king, but only over part of Israel. He rules over the land of Judah for seven and a half years, that one small part of Israel, before he finally becomes the king over all. And if you're doing the math, David was called by God to be king when he was 10, but he doesn't receive the kingdom until he's 30. David waited 20 years for God's promises to be fulfilled. You can kind of see that man after God's own heart. But where we're picking up our story for this week is 22 years after David becomes the king. And now he's in his 50s and he's no longer the cool kid who killed Goliath. And in our world, 50s is a pretty good age to be, but in ancient times, 50s was old. You probably had lost most of your teeth. You were not young. You were not handsome. You probably smelled bad. I mean, David was, he's not the cool kid anymore. And where we pick up is a pretty famous story. And chances are, if you've been around church for any length of time, you've heard about this. You've heard about David and Bathsheba. And where we're going to pick this up is in the book of uh, 2 Samuel, uh, chapter 12, verses one through five. It says, in the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. They destroyed the Ammonite army and they laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. Late one afternoon after his midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. As he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. He sent someone to find out who she was, and he was told she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Elam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her, and when she came to the palace, he slept with her. And she had just completed the purification rites after having her menstrual period, and then she returned home. And later, when Bathsheba discovered that she was pregnant, she sent David a message saying, I am pregnant. So David, for a reason we do not know, maybe it was old age, maybe he had gone tired of war, but for whatever reason, the text tells us that David, even though kings should have gone off to war, didn't. It says in the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. So on this particular afternoon, he's walking around the rooftop of his palace and he sees this beautiful woman and he wants her. And what kings want, kings get. You can't tell a king no. So she's brought to him and he sleeps with her and she becomes pregnant and now David has a real problem. He's not going to be able to get away with what he has done because Uriah, the Hittite, uh, who is Bathsheba's husband, isn't home, he's off to war. So David hatches this plan. He has Uriah called home from war and he's hoping that Uriah will come home, go sleep with his wife and then all will be fixed, right? Just like that, David can wash his hands of it. So Uriah comes home from battle and David pretends that he wants this battle report uh, from him. And it says, when Uriah arrived home, David asked him how Joab and the army were getting along and how the war was progressing. Then he told Uriah, you know, 
go home and relax. And David even sent a gift to him after he had left. But Uriah is a righteous man. And the text tells us that Uriah didn't go home. He spent the night at the palace entrance with the king's palace guards. And when David heard that Uriah had not gone home, he summoned him and asked, what's the matter? Why didn't you go home last night after being away for so long? Uriah replied, the ark and the armies of Israel and Judah are living in tents and Joab and my master's men are camping in the open fields. How could I go home to wine and dine and sleep with my wife? I swear that I would never do such a thing. Well, that didn't work. So David has Uriah stay one more night and this time David gets him drunk. Surely now he will go home and be with his wife. But the text says that even then he couldn't get Uriah to go home. And now David is in a real pickle and what he did next had disastrous consequences. So the next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab, that's the commander of his army, and gave it to Uriah to deliver. The letter instructed Joab, Station Uriah on the front lines where the battle is fiercest, then pull back so that he will be killed. Well, you can't tell a king, no. So Joab did what he was told and Uriah was killed. And David takes Bathsheba into his home, marries her, and quite frankly, kind of looks like the hero of the story, right? He takes this widowed, pregnant woman into his home. And he's the hero until... A prophet by the name of Nathan comes to David and he says, David, I want to tell you a story. There once was this man and he was poor and he had one sheep and he loved this sheep as his very own. He would cradle it in his arms and he would feed it from his table. And then there was this other man. He was rich and he was powerful and he had many sheep. And one day this rich man has some guests come over and he wants to feed his guests. But instead of taking one of his many sheep, he goes and he takes the poor man's sheep and has it slaughtered and feeds his guests with it. And the text tells us that David was furious at what the rich man had done. And I imagine in that moment that Nathan looked David directly in the eye and he said this. He said, David, you are that man. The Lord, the God of Israel says, I anointed you king of Israel and I saved you from the power of Saul. I gave you your master's house and his wives and the kingdoms of of Israel and Judah. Why then have you despised the word of the Lord and done this horrible deed? For you have murdered Uriah the Hittite with the sword of the Ammonites and stolen his wife. From this time on, your family will live by the sword because you have despised me by taking Uriah's wife to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Because of what you have done, I will cause your own household to rebel against you. I will give your wives to another man before your very eyes and he will go to bed with them in public view. You did it secretly, but I will make this happen to you openly in the sight of all Israel. And then David says, he confessed to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replied, yes, but the Lord has forgiven you and you won't die for this sin. Nevertheless, because you have shown utter contempt for the word of the Lord by doing this, your child will die. And at that moment, David's life was crushed to dust because the son 
that he bore with Bathsheba died. And you can't put that back together. You can't glue the pieces back together. You can't bring a dead child back to life. But even in that moment, David still was a man after God's own heart because he wrote a song after this happened and he says this, he says, have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love. Because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt, purify me from my sin, for I recognize my rebellion, it haunts me day and night. Against you and you alone have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight and you will be proved right in what you say and your judgment against me is just. For I was born a sinner. Yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. But you desire honesty even from the womb, teaching me wisdom even there. Purify me from my sins and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Oh, give me back my joy again. You have broken me. Now let me rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sins. Remove the stain of my guilt. Create in me a clean heart, oh God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. Don't banish me, please God, no. Please do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. And then I will teach your ways to rebels and they will return to you. Forgive me for shedding blood, oh God who saves then I will joyfully sing of your forgiveness. Unseal my lips, O Lord, that my mouth may praise you. You don't desire a sacrifice or I would offer one. You don't want a burnt offering. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit and you will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. You see, David was the king and kings are supposed to be above the law. They do as they please. When they break the law, they just rewrite the law but not David. He was a man after God's own heart. And though he was a king, he knew he was not the king. David was a king. He was not the king. Well, the death of David's son was not the only consequence of his sin. You see, God had forgiven him, but sin always comes prepackaged with a consequence. And God told David what he would suffer. He says, this is what the Lord said, because of what you've done, I'll cause your own household to rebel against you. I will give your wives to another man before your very eyes, and he will go to bed with them in public view. God's like, you did this in secret, David, but now it's gonna be open for all to see. And you know, it isn't until 10 years later that these consequences begin to unfold. 10 years after Bathsheba, David's oldest son, Amnon, becomes enraged with lust for his half-sister, Tamar. Well, he tricks her and gets her to come into his bedroom, and then he rapes her. And Tamar is completely disgraced. In this culture, there's no coming back from this. She will never be able to marry. She will never be able to bear children. She will literally live the rest of her life in shame. And David finds out about this wrong done to his daughter, but the text tells us that he does nothing about it. Perhaps he feels that he isn't one to speak when it comes to sexual sin. Well, Tamar's brother, Absalom, takes her in and he cares for her. And Absalom is David's second son and he will be in line to be the king if anything were to ever happen to Amnon. 
But you see, Absalom does nothing about his sister's rape either. He waits for two years, hoping that everyone will have forgotten about what happened when he decides to throw a banquet and he invites all of his brothers to come to this banquet. And he's hoping that Amnon will come and Amnon does and he gets him drunk. And once Amnon is drunk, Absalom commands his men to have Amnon murdered for the rape of his sister. And once this happens, Absalom flees, probably in fear that his father will retaliate and have him killed. Well, David hears about the murder of his son, Amnon, and his father, and the fact that Absalom has fled. And yet again, David does nothing about it. Well, three more years pass, and David has not called for his son, Absalom. Absalom has not returned back to Jerusalem, and Absalom is hurt. He did what anyone would do, right? I mean, wouldn't you revenge your sister in this way? I mean, isn't it an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth? I mean, surely after all these years, my father would have forgiven me. Why is it that he will not call for me? Well, we're gonna very fast forward this story so we can get to the point where our story intersects with David's life. And we pick up the story 16 years now after David commits adultery with Bathsheba. So Absalom comes home, but his father still will not see him. And so Absalom is very angry, he's hurt, and he plans to usurp his father's authority and steal the throne. And he instigates a civil war with David. And David, being a righteous man, he decides it's not worth it. I won't hurt the kingdom. If Absalom comes and I stay and fight, there will be so much bloodshed. And really, we know from the text that David still loves his son, Absalom. And so we pick it up here. It says, a messenger soon arrived in Jerusalem to tell David, all Israel has joined Absalom in a conspiracy against you. Then we must flee at once or it will be too late, David urged his men. Hurry, if we get out of the city before Absalom arrives, both we and the city of Jerusalem will be spared from disaster. We are with you, his advisors replied. Do what you think is best. So the king and all of his household set out at once and he left no one behind except 10 of his concubines to look after the palace. Well, David abandons the throne to save the city and once again, he's a fugitive, but he's not 22 anymore. Now he's 61. When you're young and strong, sometimes you can muscle your way out of a bad situation but not when you're old and weak and probably like David, just weary from all of the hard. But this is not how David thought his life would turn out. Weren't the days of his running and hiding and fighting behind him? And once again, David's life was turned into dust. He's lost children, he's lost his home, He's lost his throne, what was left? And here is where his story intersects with ours. As David was leaving the city, mourning all that was lost, he said something that yet again reveals that he was a man after God's own heart. David's advisors uh, were going with him 
and the priests came behind him and they had the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant was where God's presence rested. It was mighty, it was powerful, it was holy. And when the priests would carry it into battle, that would assure them that God's presence went with them. That would assure them that they would win this victory. But David turns around and he looks at the priests and he tells them to go back. He says, take it back. And I'm sure that the priests at that moment were thinking, David, like, why, why would we do that? I mean, if we bring this with us, then for sure this civil war will be over. For sure we'll win. And David says, nope, not this time. He said, I've done it my way in the past, but no more. And David replies this, if I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he will bring me back and let me see it. He's talking about the ark and his dwelling place again. But if he says, I am not pleased with you, if God, if you are not pleased, if God, if this is a consequence of my sin, perhaps he remembered back to the days when Nathan said that your own household will rebel against you. So David says, I am ready. Let him, God, do to me whatever seems good to him. With age and perspective, David says, I will not take matters into my own hands. God, whatever you see fit, do. Thy will, not my will. And this brings us back to dust. I uh, have been walking through the most difficult season I have ever experienced. And the brokenness and the pain that I felt has threatened to crush me. And when I read the words that I began with that said, we live in a broken world where broken things happen, so it's not surprising that things get broken in our lives as well. But what about those times when things aren't broken, but shattered beyond repair? Shattered to the point of dust. At least when things are broken, there's some hope that you can glue the pieces back together. But what if there aren't even pieces to pick up in front of you? You can't glue dust. And all I could see was dust. And I envisioned my future and I feared the worst because my future looked like dust. How could it be repaired? What if God didn't fix it? How would I go on? You can't glue dust. But do you know what's so beautiful about dust? Dust is one of God's favorite materials to work with. Because you see, from the dust of the ground, he created human beings. I mean, human beings, we're created in God's own image, but he made us from dust. Sin created brokenness with our creator and with others. It caused this world that we live in to be cursed. It caused death. It cursed us to return to dust one day. You see, we can't escape hurt or disappointment or loss or fear, but we can in the midst of it all retain our hope in God. David did. He said, if I find favor in the Lord's eyes, then he will bring me back again and let me see it. Let me see his glory and his dwelling place again. But if he says, 
I am not pleased with you, then I am ready. Let him do to me whatever seems good to him. David said, my world may be falling apart. It may be reduced to dust, but nevertheless, God, your will, not mine. And when we surrender in this way to God's plan, to God's will, to God's way, to God's timing. He does an amazing thing with dust. You see, he takes his living water and he pours it into our dust. And he creates clay. And you see, with clay, he can make something new. And Isaiah tells us that, and yet, O Lord, you are our father, and we are the clay, and you are the potter. We are all formed by your hand. David says, whatever God chooses is just. Whatever he wants to do with me, whether he wants to grind my life into dust or whether he wants to create clay and make something new, then let it be. And God tells us also in Isaiah, he says, for I am about to do something new. See, I've already begun. Do you not see it? I will make a pathway through the wilderness when you are lost and you do not know where to go. When you can't see the next step in front of you, God says, I am already making a pathway. He said, I will create rivers in the dry wasteland. I will take your dust and I will pour my water on it and I will create clay. I will make something new. And then at the very end of time, in a place where there is no more death, where there is no more disease, there's no more COVID or masks or any of that stuff, there's, there's, our kids get to go back to school, hallelujah, like one day there will be this day when it says the very hands of God will wipe the tears from our eyes. He tells us this and he says, the one sitting on the throne says, look, I am making everything new. And then he said to me, that's John who's seeing this incredible vision. He says, John, write this down for what I, God, the Lord tell you is trustworthy and true. You can take it to the bank. It will never change. What I say will happen, will happen. You see, God is in the business of taking brokenness and making something new in his timing and in his way and within his will. He will make something beautiful out of your life. But like David, we must come to the place where God is our king, the one who is in charge, the one who is justified in all all that he commands and in all that he does. Like David, we must surrender and say, I am ready. Let him do to me whatever seems good to him. And oh my friend, how I wish that this were easy. I wish away your pain and your confusion and your loss and your fear as much as I wish away mine. But this I intimately know. 
that God's way is so much better than ours. And I want you to hold on to this truth that God isn't ever going to forsake you. He will never turn his back on you. He will never leave you. You will never be alone. But he will go to great lengths to remake you. He will take your dust and add his spirit and he will make something new.